The following audio is from a sermon series entitled The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Revelation 1, 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is the word of the Lord. In October of 1911, a man named Jack Daniel was laying on his deathbed, dying from blood poisoning. And his last words were, one last drink, please. Now, it seems fitting that the last words of the father of Tennessee whiskey would be something along those lines, right? In a sense, we we think of last words as a a final stamp on one's life, a, a recapitulation of the things that are important. Now, today, we begin our study in the book of Revelation, and Eugene Peterson, he actually just passed away a couple of weeks ago, but a, a faithful pastor says, by far, the most famous last words ever spoken or ever written are the words of Revelation. And this sermon series that we're kicking off today for the next four months is going to be a study of God's last words to the church. We're going to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire book of Revelation. There are, there's literary scholars that suggest that Revelation is a deliberately composed coda or finale to the whole canon of Scripture. But unlike other last words that we might be familiar with, these last words do not come to us from a deathbed, as Nitschke might suggest. The words of Revelation loudly resound just the opposite, that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is victorious over death and he's coming back soon. But just because these words are the most famous last words of all time, it does not mean that they are the most admired nor the best understood words. In fact, when we look at Revelation, it is widely the most misunderstood and most confusing book of the Bible. Because of this, some people tend to ignore it. They get scared of the ten-horned, seven-headed beast, the the ravenous dragon, the harlot, the, the, the blood that is up to the girdles of horses. It's too intimidating. Sounds too much like a fairy tale. While there's others who approach Revelation a little bit differently, they they resemble more uh, Ralphie from the Christmas story who has his little codex trying to unlock the secret mysteries of the end times. They they look at Revelation and they're trying to predict when Jesus comes back. They're looking for signs and clues. They're trying to match them up to modern events. They take an algebraic approach to the book using numbers and formulas to crank out predictions. It's quite humorous, actually. If you were to to go on Wikipedia, you can find a page that's devoted to mispredictions of the end of the world, like when Revelation was going to come in its fullness. One of my favorite reasons or favorite um, 
predictions was summarized in a book, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. It hasn't happened yet, so. G.K. Chesterton said that though John saw many strange monsters in this revelation, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. This book has been wildly misunderstood. It's been used in ways that are unhelpful for the Christian walk, but we're gonna take a different approach to this book. We're gonna take what we're given. We're not coming to this book with a list of questions and we're demanding that they be answered. We're not gonna make any bold predictions. We don't need to do any of that because what we're doing when we come to Revelation, we're coming to one of the most naturally electrifying, adrenaline-producing words, and they're all true. Revelation gives us fresh eyes to see. See, this word that we receive at the back of the Bible isn't just dull words on a flat piece of paper. The book of Revelation comes alive. Revelation, when we understand it correctly and hold to it truly, is like a gift of God. It's like a a trumpet blast meant to wake us up to the truer present and pending reality. Now, I think that it's pretty common once you get going in life, once you've established your own career, once you've got your household together, maybe you've been married, you've kind of hit all the check marks to to kind of get on your way in life, there's a tendency for things to get boring and dull. And the reason for this is because you aren't fully awake to God's true reality. Revelation peaks our senses. It gives us new eyes to see old truths. It gives us a new melody to sing to an old hymn, new flavors on our taste buds. But most importantly, revelation revitalizes our imagination. Now, we might think of imagination as a means to escape reality. That's not the type of imagination that revelation provokes. The type of imagination that revelation cultivates is one that sees the truer reality, things clearly for what they are. Wendell Berry says this, the imagination is our way into the divine imagination, permitting us to see holy as whole H, or excuse me, as whole W-H-O-L-E and holy H-O-L-Y. What we perceive is scattered as ordered, what we perceive as random. What he's saying here is that what we gain from revelation is the ability to see things the way God sees things. And in placing ourselves under the word of revelation, Not only do we recover our senses, not only do we regain a a godly imagination, but what we're going to see today in verses one through three is that there's tremendous blessing for us. And so church, let us us dive into this book together. Let's lay hold of this blessing that God has for us. So if you would, uh, open up your Bibles, get out your calculators. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke because I was making fun of that earlier, guys. 
Uh, open your Bibles. We're at the very, very back of the Bible. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 595. And we're going to just start with these first three verses. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Now, here in the first words of this book of the Bible, we are told precisely what this is. This book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The, the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypsis. It's, it's the word where we get apocalypse, right? And when we think of the word apocalypse, it usually invokes this idea of end of the world, this doomsday. And, and there is some correctness to that association, but really the word revelation, what it means in this context is uncovering. This book that John gives us, actually that God gives us through John is making something known that has previously been hidden. It's like a, an artist who reveals their work. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And this means two things. That first of all, this revelation is from Jesus. And secondly, it's about Jesus. The whole aim of the book of Revelation is to tell us something about Jesus that has been under wraps. Now, this book being uh, an apocalypse, a, a revelation, puts it in a unique genre of literature. Typically, we think of literature comes in basically two genres, right? Fiction and nonfiction. But really, there are several different genres, and, and genre impacts the way that you read each specific piece. Right? For example, you're, you're going to read a newspaper differently than you read a novel. You're, you're going to read a, a love letter differently than you read an atlas because they fit into different genres. Now, Revelation is unique and a little complicated because really this book is a combination of three different genres, the first of which being apocalypse literature or apocalyptic literature. Now, while apocalyptic literature is pretty much extinct today, it was a very popular genre of literature in the first century. And the way that you know a piece of literature is apocalyptic is, is that typically it is filled with imagery, which Revelation is. It's telling a story of judgment, which Revelation does. And it comes through some sort of angelic messenger, which Revelation does as well. And so right away we see this, is this characteristic in the chain of communication that is noted in verses 1 and 2. And we say that all scripture is God-breathed, that, that it comes from God, it's proceeded from the, the heart and the mouth of God. But the information that we receive about this specific book in the, the, the Bible is that it has a unique delivery. This information 
of the end times has a chain uh, of communication. Now, in, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells his followers that no one knows the day or the hour of the end times, not the Son, which is himself, nor the angels, only the Father. And here in Revelation, we are being told that the Father is giving Jesus pieces of information about the last days. Not necessarily all the details, but but pieces of the end times. And then Jesus receives this information from God the Father, and then he sends an angel to communicate these to his servant, John, who then is, is intended to communicate this message to the masses. But what's unique about this book of the Bible is God doesn't just tell John what to say. It's not as if the word came down from heaven we are told that John is, in a sense, taken up to heaven to see for himself as he is taken up in the spirit on the Lord's day, which in verse 10, which we'll get to next week. So what we're seeing here is that all of the visuals, all of the illustrations in this book, John has experienced these personally. He's giving an eyewitness account. He's, he's documenting the things that he heard with his own ears. And he's revealing to us things that are to come. Now, the second genre that this book of the Bible fits into is the genre of prophecy. In verse 3, the whole book of this Bible is categorized as prophecy. And usually when we think of prophecy, what we think of is a prediction of future events, things that have yet to happen. Now, this is definitely the case in this scenario. John is telling his readers about things that must soon take place, things that are coming down the pipeline. So there is most certainly a future orientation to this message that makes it a prophecy. But prophecy is not just about the future events. Prophecy in his genre, is also declaring what is true and what is oftentimes forgotten to warrant a proper response. So in other words, John is prophesying. He's proclaiming the truth so that the church would respond appropriately to the set of truths that he's conveying. And so in this sense, there's really not a lot of new information in Revelation that can't be found elsewhere in Scripture. In fact, Revelation is is one of the books of the Bible that has the most references to the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament that have come before it. But Revelation says it differently so our dull hearts and deaf ears can hear afresh and respond in a new way. In a similar sense, our Sunday gatherings are prophetic, right? We're, I'm not saying anything new each week. I, every week, we're coming to hear the gospel maybe in a new and fresh way. We're, we're proclaiming these truths so that the church would respond to them properly, that there is a prophetic vocation to the church in our Sunday mornings where we assert what is true, which oftentimes we forget at some point during the week, And we're called back to believe them, to respond to them appropriately. So Revelation is not only apocalyptic in 
telling of the end times. It's not only prophetic in telling of what things are to come and proclaiming truth, but the last genre that revelation can be categorized as an epistle, as a, as a letter that is written to a specific people in a specific place. An epistle is usually a word of encouragement or instruction, usually addressing specific problems that have arisen within the church. So this means that the book of Revelation not only has future implications that that affect the end times and things that are to come, but it also has direct implications on the original audience, the people that this letter is addressed to, and, and specifically these are the seven churches that we'll get to know over the course of the next two weeks. But this letter is written to them. And while John has this specific audience in mind while he is writing, the book of Revelation is also written for the the larger audience. It's a revelation that's meant to be given to all of Jesus' servants in heaven and on earth, all of the saints through time and space. This is a message for the church. It's a message for us today. And while this letter, this book of the Bible, is not written directly to us, it is written for us, for our benefit, just like the rest of Scripture. And so as we keep these three different genres in mind and how they play into one another, this will help us interpret the tricky spots that we come to. And knowing the genre also helps us understand how John is thinking He's thinking through the lens of a pastor, caring for his church. He's, he's thinking as a prophet, declaring the things that are true. And he's also writing as a poet, trying to stir our imaginations and see things the way God sees them. So he's, he's shepherding the flock with unshakable truth that stokes the imagine, imagination and allows us to live in the true reality. Now, at this point, when we hear of such word that's coming, we're saying that this word is coming from God to a guy named John. We ought to to be a little bit concerned, right? Who is this John guy? What's what's his street cred? Is he credible or is this guy a whack job? Because if someone is claiming they have a message from God, it is wise for us to do our due diligence and know who exactly it is who's, who's speaking to us. Otherwise, you'll end up uh, in a park playing a wooden flute waiting for Zorp, the surveyor, the 28-foot lizard god, to come and devour the earth. That's a Parks and Rec reference for those of you who just... We need to do our due diligence. Who, Who is this John guy? Now, church tradition and the book itself points to this John being John the Apostle, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is the same author of the Gospel of John, the same author as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in fact, he, he fits the description that's given in verse 2 when he says, where is it? He says, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. 
If you think about it, John's gospel begins like this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. John has this priority placed on the word. He was known for being devoted to the word that is Jesus. And so he's testifying about this word. Now, because of John's devotion to the word of God, to to Jesus, to whoever he saw, he ends up writing this book from the island of Patmos. See that in verse nine. Patmos is an island which Rome would exile political criminals, which Christians who were outspoken about their faith were viewed as political criminals exiles or political criminals because of the message that they proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, you and I might not think of that as, a, as an overtly political statement, but when you're in, in the realm of Rome where the emperor is setting himself up as God, as Lord, that is a deeply political statement. And so John, being faithful to the message that Jesus is Lord, finds himself exiled shipped off to this island. And because of this message that Jesus is Lord, this is one of the primary reasons why Christians, especially Christian leaders, are persecuted in the world. And John is definitely a leader. He's one of the the 12 apostles, and he carries an authority over the church Actually, not just one church, but over seven churches, and not just seven churches, but the church throughout time and history. But in verse 9, John identifies himself not according to his authority, not according to his leadership status or his prestige, but by association to the people in whom he writes. He says, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. See, John connects to his readers as a fellow family member, as one who has also been adopted by God through grace. Now, what he's doing here in saying, like, I'm your brother, I'm your partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, he's showing us that people who belong to the kingdom of God People who belong to Jesus will be at odds with the kingdom of this world. Really, this is the context in which these letters land upon the church, that the church is finding itself at odds and saying they believe that Jesus is Lord and devoting themselves to the ways of Jesus. The culture at large, the world oppresses, pushes them out. When faced with opposition, there are two basic ways to respond. The first way is to just fold, right? to, to compromise, to, to give up on what you stand for. Now, the second response that you could have is to endure, to, to press on to double down on. Now, now John is writing to tell the church to press on. He's saying, don't give up. Don't compromise as the world presses in on you and tries to push you to the margins. 
He's saying, endure patiently. Now, this is the overarching message for all of the churches that he is writing to and to the church today. Don't give up. Keep pressing. Endure. As the culture pushes Christians further and further out into the margins, as we face more and more disdain from our culture, don't lose heart. And while the church has gone through seasons of being at the center of culture, the the, the era of Christendom, where, where Christianity was viewed as the organizing factor of all civilization, there have been times where Christianity has been well received in history, but more and more, we are finding ourselves in a post Christian era. More and more, orthodox, true, biblical Christianity is getting pushed back to the margins. And this is a biblical Christianity where where there's a high commitment to the word of God, where there's high visibility, right? The the church isn't just these holy huddles sort of tucked away in the dark recesses of the city, but it's a, a, a light, a city on a hill, a light to the world, And more and more as the culture presses in, this biblical Christianity, a high commitment, a high visibility, is being traded and compromised for a false version of Christianity, which is a low commitment to God's word, a low visibility, where where church becomes more like a country club than it is a living organism that God has put on this earth to work for the renewal of all things. Now, the reason why this is happening is because the culture is more tolerant of a low commitment, low visibility version of Christianity than they are a high commitment, high visibility version of Christianity. Because in this this counterfeit version of Christianity, they aren't making any significant truth claims. The more Christians proclaim Jesus is Lord, that everything is under his rule and his reign, the more the culture will press back and fight against it. And the reality is that there are churches that are fading away, like strong biblical churches that are fading away in our cities and across our nation because of this pressure that they're facing. But by God's grace, Sacred City Church strives to remain orthodox, to be true, to to be highly committed to God's word, to be highly visible in our city. And the more that we are this orthodox church committed to the Bible and God's word, the more disdain we will face in a secularized culture. Now, I can confidently say that this will be our trajectory because that was the exact trajectory of the church in the first century. The more outspoken they were about who Jesus is and what he did, the more they were cursed by the culture. Now, some people might look at this trend and see see where we're headed and might be sad about it. But church, I don't think there's any reason to be sad about this. 
especially when Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. See, there's a great reward awaiting for us for those who, who endure the persecution on account of Jesus. But here's another thing that happens, that when the church is marginalized, when, when the church is pushed to the fringes of society, the church gains an incredible witness. If you think about it, when the church was started, when Jesus was, was raised into heaven, at that point, there were only uh, maybe 100 believers at that time. The Roman government was not a fan of Christians for their message of Jesus being Lord, but as they remained true to that message, as they devoted themselves to the word of God, as they lived in community and on mission, God did something unthinkable. The, the church grew in ways that normal society structures don't grow. It was in the, you think of it, the soil of per persecution, the soil of disdain are fertile soils for church growth. The church went from a few hundred people in the first century within 300 years over a million people. And the message that the church carried through all of this, through the suffering that they faced is that it's better to be blessed by God and cursed by the world than it is to be blessed by the world and cursed by God. Now, Scripture is pretty clear about this. In James 4.4, 4, we're told that being friends with the world, not, and not just like being, it's not just saying being friendly with the world, but being friends, adopting, uh, taking the ways of a secularized culture. Being friends with the world means that we are being hostile enemies toward God. So John offers his readers something different. He says, don't. He's like, you don't have to be cursed by God. You might be cursed by the culture. You might be cursed by the world for your faith in God. But listen, for those who endure, there is a threefold blessing. Let's take a look at this. Verse 3. John says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. See, John is saying that there is blessing in this book. And the first blessing he tells us is for those who read aloud the words of this prophecy. Amy, I bet you didn't know that you, there was a blessing in here for you today. A special measure of grace as you stand before the congregation and, and, and read aloud the words of God. Because in reading aloud the words of God, we are declaring that those words are true. It's, it's the church's profession of faith. These aren't just dull words on the page. This is living and active. It's working. 
Now, the reality is that we might not understand all of the intricacies of this book. In fact, I'm just gonna say, this is my little disclaimer up front, there's probably places in in trying to interpret this book that I'm not gonna get it 100% right. I'm gonna work really hard to get it as right as I can. But there are gonna be places where we have mistaken ideas or interpretations, but here the promises, here here the blessing is in just reading aloud this book. In in reading aloud this book, there's a blessing because what we're saying is that that Jesus is king of kings, that he is Lord of lords, that he is the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. He's the lamb who was slain. He's going to come back like a roaring lion. That's the message we proclaim when we read aloud the words of this prophecy that Jesus wins. And I know living in a culture that's wanting to push you out, keep you silent, keep you from believing the things that God wants us to believe about him and the world, there are times that's really hard to believe this. It's really hard to believe Jesus. If you're stuck in sin, if you feel like you have this constant battle going on in your life where you just can't beat it, It's hard to believe that Jesus went. But here's the second blessing. The second blessing that John tells us is for those who hear the words of this prophecy as they are proclaimed. Just in being here today, there's a blessing for you. Now, you'll notice this does not say blessed are those who who hear a bunch of talk radio. Blessed are those who binge Netflix. There's not a blessing in that, friends. There is, however, blessing in filling your ears with the word of God. This is one of the things that takes a lot of load off my shoulders on Sunday mornings. I, I mean, I hope my, my sermon's a blessing to you. I hope my sermon uh, provokes faith and hope and, and moves you closer to Jesus and creates an awe and sense of wonder for Jesus and what he's done for you. But there is a blessing in just reading aloud the words and hearing the word of God read aloud. Now, scholars say that this book was meant to be read publicly. When, you, when they would read it publicly, they would read the whole thing all the way through. I sat down last week and read it all the way through. It took me about an hour. You usually have to stop and like scratch my head and figure out what's being said. But it would take quite a long time to read this whole thing from front to back. And the way that you get a full picture of what's going on in Revelation is in doing that and sitting down and seeing the whole thing as one unit. That's the way that we enjoy the forest without getting lost in the thicket of the trees. Now, while we won't read the whole book from beginning to end on a Sunday morning, there are gonna be some weeks where we read a whole chapter, maybe two chapters at a time. And we're gonna place a priority on the reading of God's word. We're even trimming back some of, maybe we'll take a song out to accommodate for the extra 10 or 15 minutes of time that we're gonna spend reading and hearing the word read aloud. And the reason that we're doing that is because we don't wanna rob you of a blessing, And so there's blessing in reading aloud. There's blessing in hearing the word read aloud. And finally, John says, there's blessing for those who keep what is written. 
in the word. This is similar to what James says in chapter one. He says, not only should you be hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Now, don't be mistaken here. This is not a, a, a blessing buffet, okay? This is not blessing a la carte. You can't, you can't just pick and choose which blessings. I'd like to have the read aloud blessing. I'd like to have this uh, uh, hearing the word read aloud blessing and just opt out of being doers of the word. It doesn't work that way. This blessing that John is talking about is three parts of one blessing, in reading aloud and hearing and being doers of the word. And what this tells us is that the book of Revelation is not just about knowing the details of the end times. It's not just about a picture of the future. What this tells us is that Revelation deeply impacts the way that we live life right now. That we are to actually live like we believe God's word is true. That we are to live like God's word is the foundation for our life. That it would inform every decision that you make. Now in a broad sense we could say that this is true of all scripture, right? Keeping the word. Be doers of the word. Loving one another. Being hospitable to the outsider. Fighting lust and greed and envy. Being generous and giving. Forgiving others. Making disciples. But the message that John wants us to live out of what we ought to be doers of is this matter of enduring, standing strong in the faith in the midst of persecution. When you think about it, these three marks in, in reading aloud scripture, proclaiming what is true and hearing the word of God and submitting yourself to the word and then, and then doing the word of God this is essentially what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I would argue that if you're not doing all of those, those three things together, the evidence is not in your favor that you are a Christian. That a Christian proclaims the faith. They are shaped by the word of God and are doing the word of God. And so let me ask you, Christian, are you living in pursuit of this blessing? Are you pursuing God or are you trying to make friends with the world? Are you filling your ears with the word of God? Are you vocalizing your profession? Are you doing what God's word instructs you to do? And to an even greater degree, are you ready to suffer for Christ? Are you ready to do these things when it's unpopular? Are you ready to do these things when, when you lose friends? When you're disowned by your political party? When your neighbors think you're a weirdo? Are you ready to endure with Jesus in a secularizing culture? There's a saying 
that you don't wanna find yourself on the wrong side of history, right? The decision you make now or how you vote, you don't wanna find yourself on the wrong side of history. Revelation tells us you don't wanna find yourself on the wrong side of the future. If you know what's at stake here, then the answer to these questions ought to be yes. Yes, I'm filling my ears with the word of God. I'm doing what God's word instructs me to do because there is so much at stake here. But there's also part of this that seems like an impossible task. In a culture where following Jesus gets harder and harder, the narrow path seems too hard and we want to veer to the wide path, the, 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 the path of acceptance by the world, friendship with the world. But Jesus tells us that's the path to destruction. The reality is that we're gonna fail at this. There's a sense where we're gonna lose out on the blessing because our ears will get deaf. Our tongues will be slow to profess. We won't live it out. We won't be doers of the word. Our hearts will grow discouraged and there's this temptation to compromise. Now, friends, it's in these moments. It's when that temptation arises that it's crucial for you to remember who it is that called you to this life. Jesus himself, the one who is calling you to this blessing, became a curse for us so that we could be blessed by him. That Jesus on the cross, he faced the ultimate ridicule and humiliation. In being devoted to the word of God, in being the word of God, he was scorned and discarded, pushed to the fringes. He, knew, he knows exactly what it's like to be marginalized by the world. But listen to this, not only was Jesus cursed by the culture, not only was he cursed by the world, but Jesus was cursed by God. By going to the cross, he wasn't just being ridiculed by the world. He there took upon the wrath, the curse of God for all of our sins, for all of our failures, for our inability to be hearers and doers of the word. And he took this curse upon himself in order to give us his own blessing, the blessing that he deserved for living the perfect life. This, friends, this is where we find our blessing in holding on to Jesus Christ. Now Paul, or excuse me, not Paul, John, who's writing this, he closes this verse by saying, for, for the time is near. 
What he's saying is the time of blessing is near. And, and, and scholars look at this, this language and they say this isn't just something that happens far out in the future someday or in the, in the approximate close future that when Jesus says the time is near, when, when the, the kingdom of God is at hand, it means it's right now. That there's blessing here and now. Yes, there's gonna be tremendous blessing when we inherit the kingdom of God in its fullness. But the time is near. The time is at hand. There's blessing for us right now. I love what Eugene Peterson says here. He says, the only thing that's keeping us from this blessing is ignorance, unbelief, or timid hesitancy. Church, let us not be cowards. Let us not shriek back when the culture pushes in on us. Let us stand confidently in the work of Jesus. Let us lay hold of this testimony that is true. And in doing so, let us receive the blessing here and now that God has for us.